your Bible and join me once again in Acts chapter 6. We'll finish up Acts chapter 6 today and we'll sort of set the stage for Acts chapter 7 for next week. If you want to use a pew Bible, then 874 is where you want to turn. We'll read from verse 8 through the end of the chapter. Acts chapter 6. This is sort of a transitionary place to be in the story of, it, of the Acts. If you notice, um, there's one person that has been sort of front and center up until this point, and that's Peter. Peter has been the central figure up until this point in the Acts story. Now, another person is going to be converted to Christ in chapter 9, who will take center stage beginning in chapter 13. Of course, I'm speaking of the Apostle Paul. Beginning in chapter 13, through the rest of the book, Paul is the center of attention through all of those chapters. In fact, after chapter 13, we will only hear of Peter one more time in chapter 15, briefly during the um, Jerusalem council there. And so we're sort of between those two points. Peter has been the central figure up through chapter 5. Chapter 13 starts Paul's section. But between those two points in the Acts story, we're sort of in transition. Peter's still around. In chapter 9, he'll get his vision of the unclean animals. Chapter 10 is all about Cornelius going to Cornelius' house. But also in these chapters, we're going to read about some other folks. We'll read about Philip with the Samaritan revival, the Ethiopian eunuch. Um, we'll read about some other events and some other people. But here we're, go- we're going to read today about, of course, Stephen. The next two chapters, chapter 6 and chapter 7, are all about Stephen. Stephen, as you know, Last week we read about how he was chosen among these seven servants of the church. It appears that maybe he was the leader. His name is is listed first. And so he was chosen last week. Today we're going to read about some things that happened in his life, particularly he's arrested, put on trial, and then of course next week is the famous sermon from Stephen in chapter 7. So if you have your Bibles, then uh, let me um, invite you to listen in. If you'd like to follow along, you can do so. But let me encourage you to just listen as I read through God's Word, especially for the first time. Beginning in verse 8, we read these words, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Sicilia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen, But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. I wonder if you will join me as we pray right now. Father, we pray your anointing on the study and the preaching of your word. Your word truly gives us the words of life. We pray that you would apply those words of life to our lives today, and we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. So this is the first point in the Acts story that we have read about someone other than the 12 apostles, the 11 original apostles, plus the replacement apostle Matthias. 
This is the first point that we've read about anyone other than those apostles being persecuted or put in jail or anything like that. Stephen, of course, was not one of the original apostles. He um, is a Greek-speaking person. He was a Greek-speaking Jew. Now he's a Greek-speaking Christian. And so this man Stephen has been converted to faith in Christ, and he's preaching in these Greek synagogues, the synagogues that are listed here in in verse 9. We're not sure how many synagogues this is. We know that there's one, the synagogue of the freedmen. But then there's also some others, the Cyrenians, the Alexandrians, Sicilia. We're not sure if those are separate synagogues or different groups of people. But in any case, we know that Stephen here has been preaching at these Greek synagogues. He's preaching Christ. He's preaching the message of Christ. And not only is he preaching the message of Christ, but he's doing so with great power and great effectiveness, which is, of course, the result of the filling of the Spirit. We've seen many times already that when the Spirit of Christ fills a man, particularly in the story of Acts, the result is that he speaks powerful testimony for Christ. So Stephen has been speaking this powerful testimony for Christ. He he, he has been preaching with such power that that he is obviously the the fulfillment, the the embodiment of Jesus' promise in chapter 1, verse 8. Remember when Jesus said, you will be filled by the Holy Spirit and you will be filled with power to be my witnesses. So Stephen, obviously, is the fulfillment of this. He's preaching with great power. And some people aren't happy about this. Just as when we see in the ministry of Jesus, when Jesus proclaims His words of life, some people receive that with great joy. Other people are not very happy about this. So these folks in verse 9 are not particularly happy about this. We we take this to be maybe some of the leaders of these synagogues. And they're going to sort of join together against Stephen. Now I want to do, in uh, verse 9 here, I want to just sort of bring our attention to one group that talks about those from Sicilia. Now, um, we know of another convert to Christ who was also a Greek-speaking Jew from Sicilia. Saul of Tarsus was a Greek-speaking Jew from Sicilia. So, it seems likely that Paul was not only responsible for Stephen's death, but also he was responsible for Stephen's arrest. It would seem likely that Paul probably was among this group from Sicilia that rose up against Stephen. Now, if that is the case, if if Saul of Tarsus is one of these spoken of from Sicilia that's rising up against Stephen, if that is the case, then what that means is that Paul first heard the gospel from Stephen, which is an interesting point to make note of as we pass through. So Paul, perhaps, is, is among this group that's not happy with uh, what Stephen is preaching. Um, And so these these people rise up against Stephen, and they have this debate. Verse 10, they attempt to debate Stephen. And the debate doesn't go very well for them. It seems that from verse 10, they could not withstand the wisdom of the Spirit with which Stephen was speaking, so they sort of lose the debate. Then they resort to some other tactics. Verse 11, they secretly instigated men, meaning they bribed them. They stirred up the people. They instigated these men to say, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And so then they stir up the people as well. And then they bring up these false witnesses with this testimony, this testimony that's not really, it's not lies, but it is certainly twisting of the truth, isn't it? Because in verse 14, we we see their testimony. Their testimony is that this man Stephen, he's saying that this man Jesus of Nazareth said that he will destroy this temple and raise it up again in three days. Well, 
There's a great deal of truth to that. Jesus did say that. So they're not twisting his words so much as they're twisting his meaning. Because, of course, what did Jesus mean when he said those words? Remember when it happened in John chapter 2. The Pharisees, the Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, give us a sign that you really are who you say you are. Give us a sign. Jesus says, I won't give you a sign, but here's what I will give you. Destroy this temple and I will, rise, I will raise it up again in three days. What did Jesus mean? He meant himself. Because Jesus is our temple. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything the temple is about. Jesus is how we encounter God. It's how we come to God. That's what the temple was all about. Jesus is our temple. And so what Jesus was saying was, destroy me, destroy this body, and I will raise this up again in three days. So they're twisting his meaning here. And so they bring this false testimony against him. And then verse 15, we see sort of this contrast Here's this man, Stephen, on trial, and he's supposed to be this evil, wicked person, but we see that he has the face of an angel, the face that looks like an angel. Now, if you're thinking right now, I wonder what the face of an angel actually looks like. If that's what you're thinking, then you're missing Luke's point altogether because Luke is not speaking to us about the appearance of an angel. What he's speaking to us is about a great contrast that God is drawing between this man Stephen and those who are holding him on trial. Because you see, Stephen here is described as having the face of an angel. Think for just a moment about the only other person in Scripture that's ever described in similar ways. The only other person in Scripture that's ever described to have a face like that. Anybody know? Moses. Moses is the only other person in Scripture that the Bible speaks of as having some sort of face that... that is uh, an abnormal face like that. Moses' face would glow after he met with God, right? It would, it would shine as he came back down from the mountain after receiving the law. So what is God doing here? Stephen is on trial in a great part because of what he said about Moses. Because apparently he's profaning the name of Moses. And here it is, God will make his face to shine or look like that, the face of an angel. And it's a, it's a great irony that God is, is putting forth here. Here you have this man on trial. You claim that he's profaning the name of Moses. Well, let me just show you who is really profaning the name of Moses. However, have I ever made your face shine like that? So God is, is presenting a great irony here with, this, with the face of Stephen shining like an angel or, or appearing as an angel. Now, that's about all that I really want to say about all of that. Because next week when we start to get into Stephen's sermon, we'll talk a lot more about the comparisons between Stephen and Moses and what some of these other things mean. So I do want to sort of leave that for right now, and I want to notice some striking parallels, some dramatic parallels. If you have your bulletin, all this is in your, your bulletin notes. Let's just turn here real quickly. And I want us to very quickly just notice some dramatic parallels between Stephen and Jesus Christ. We read, of course, in verse 8 there that Stephen was full of grace. Anybody want to take a guess as to who the only other person in Scripture that's ever described as being full of grace? Jesus Christ, of course. John 1, verse 14, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the only other person in all of Scripture ever described as being full of grace. So we see a parallel there between Stephen and between Jesus. Well, Stephen was not only full of grace, but he was also 
described here in verse 8 as doing mighty works, doing great signs and wonders for God, doing, doing signs and doing deeds with great power. Now, when we think of a man that's doing things for God with great power, that's doing mighty deeds with great power, who do we think of? We, th- we think, obviously, yes, of Jesus, right? Because Jesus was a man who was full of the power of the Spirit. He did great and mighty things. He was filled with power, and people were in awe of His power. We think of the disciples in the bottom of the boat. Their mouth is dropping open because they cannot believe what they just saw. This man, Jesus, just spoke to a storm, and it was calm. Or we think of of the fear that came over the people that were living in the village nearby the cemetery where the man who was possessed with so many demons that they called him Legion. And they'd known this man his whole life. And they couldn't control him. They tied him up many times. He'd break free. Never wore clothes. And he was just a maniac, possessed man. And now this man is sitting calm in his right mind, wearing clothes. And they're filled with fear. We think of things like that. Jesus was a man who was filled with great power. And we see a parallel in Stephen here as well. Also, Stephen is described to us as being full of wisdom. His wisdom confounds those who attempt to debate him. We think, obviously, of Jesus and and Jesus' wisdom there as well. Think of how often Jesus' enemies tried to trap him in his words. Think of all the tricks that his enemies tried to play on him to try to trap Jesus in His words. You remember that crazy question from the Sadducees about the, the woman who was married seven times and who she's going to be married to in, in heaven? What a crazy question. They're trying to trap Jesus. didn't work. Jesus trapped them in their own words. Or think of the Pharisees when they try to trap Jesus by asking Him which is the greatest commandment or uh, by asking Him the question about divorce, trying to trip Him up in His own words. And Jesus always confounded them with His words. Think of when Jesus asked them, oh, by the way, can you tell me what Psalm 110 means? When David says to the Messiah, my Lord, can you tell me what that means? And they couldn't, right? Or think of what Mark tells us as Jesus is teaching the crowds of people and the crowds of people say, we've never heard teaching like this. This man teaches with authority. We've never heard this before. And so Jesus was a man full of wisdom. His his enemies couldn't trap Him in His words. Instead, He would confound them with His words. We see the same thing of Stephen here. Stephen was full of wisdom. We also see that Stephen's enemies were instigated against him by his preaching. Stephen's preaching enraged his enemies, so much so that they rose up against him. Who can can help but think of Jesus' preaching there? When Jesus says... uh, before Abraham was, I am. They were enraged by that. Or, or I and the Father are one. And they were enraged by that. Or think in Luke chapter 4 when Jesus gets up in the synagogue and He reads from the Isaiah scroll about, about God proclaiming how the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of the Lord will fill His Messiah and He will preach freedom to the captives and, and sight to the blind. And He puts the scroll down and He says... Today, this has been fulfilled in your presence. And they were enraged. Jesus' preaching 
enraged his enemies. The same with Stephen here. Also, we see how Stephen was accused of blaspheming Moses and blaspheming God. Jesus, of course, was also accused of blaspheming God. Remember the paralytic when he says, your sins are forgiven? And they say, that's blasphemy. God and God alone can forgive sins. So they accuse Jesus of blaspheming. But uh, what about this blaspheming against Moses? What, is, what does that mean? Well, we should, we should understand that what they were really saying is they, were, they accused him of blaspheming the law that came from Moses. Or, more specifically, the traditions that came from the law of Moses. Jesus was accused of blaspheming those same things. Remember how often Jesus was accused of profaning the Sabbath? How often did they accuse Jesus of breaking the Sabbath? Or uh, you remember when they accused Jesus of, of how Him and His disciples didn't do those ceremonial washings before they ate? Those things were just traditions. Jesus was accused of profaning those things, just like Stephen was here. Also, we see that the people were stirred up against Stephen. Reminds us of how the crowds were stirred up against Jesus. Remember how the chief priests stirred up the people to such a frenzy of hatred that though Pilate declare this man is an innocent man, they said, we don't care. Put him on a cross anyway. They were stirred up to such anger and rage. Same thing that we see of Stephen here. And then also we see Stephen is arrested and put on trial and they bring false witnesses. Who can forget the false witnesses brought against Jesus? That was the only way that they could get Jesus sent to Pilate was by bringing these false witnesses. In fact, the false witnesses used the same false testimony. They used the same thing with Jesus about when He said about the temple, destroy the temple. They used the same thing against Stephen here. So we could could see those things, but we can see even more than that. There's more that we could talk about. We could talk about the shortness of Stephen's ministry and how Jesus' ministry was also very much relatively short. We could talk about the nature of Stephen's ministry. Stephen's ministry was serving the widows. Jesus said, I came not to be served, but to serve. There's so many parallels between Stephen and Jesus that we don't need to see all of them for you to have the reaction that I hope you have, and that is the reaction that says, wow, Stephen was a lot like Christ. There are a great deal of similarities, parallels between Stephen and Christ. In fact, May I suggest that I don't know of another character in our Bibles that was more Christ-like in more ways than Stephen. Moses was a type of Christ, right? And Moses did more powerful things than Stephen did. But I think Stephen is like Christ in more ways than Moses was. David was a type of Christ. Solomon was a type of Christ. We see those types of Christ or those similarities with Christ and other people in the Bible, but I think that Stephen is perhaps the most similar or the most parallel to Christ in the most different ways of anyone that we can find in our Bible. So we see all that and we say, wow, Stephen was a lot like Christ. Or let me rephrase it, Stephen was very Christ-like. I think that's one of the points that God wants us to get from this section, is He wants us to come away with this understanding that this man was a great deal like Christ. So much so that even the events of his life played themselves out 
in remarkably similar ways to the life of Christ. Stephen was Christ-like. Stephen fulfilled his purpose. He fulfilled his destiny. He became like Christ. He became Christ-like. That is our purpose. That is our destiny. That is why God made us. That is why God saved us. To make us like His Son. That is the purpose of salvation. That is the purpose of creation. To make us like His Son. As a child of God, you should deeply desire to be like Christ. If you don't, then there's a problem somewhere. A very serious problem. But as a child of God, you should desire deeply to become like Christ. Now what does that mean to become like Christ? Does it mean that we stop being who we are and we become someone we're not? Does it mean that we become some sort of a new person or a different person? No, it doesn't mean that at all. Becoming like Christ means that we become who we are. Paul says in Galatians 2 verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Paul is saying, I am becoming like Christ because that is who I am now. I am in Christ. And so as I become like Christ, I'm not becoming like some new person that I'm not. I'm becoming the person that I am because I am in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Paul says, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. New things have come. And so if we are in Christ, we are a new person. We're not becoming a new person. We are a new person. And we're just simply becoming what we already are. I think of it in terms of of perhaps uh, a shoplifter. Think of, of a shoplifter. Perhaps you've known someone who had a real problem habitually shoplifting. A lot of shoplifters are are that way. They don't steal because they need the things they steal. They steal just because they steal. And so if you've ever known someone like this, then then you, you perhaps are familiar with how people can learn to shoplift in their teens, and then they just continue. And every store they go in, they have to take something. They have to take something. Well, picture that person who has shoplifted for 20 years, and finally they're caught... The evidence is piled up. They're sent before the judge. The evidence is there. They're clearly guilty. The videotape shows them taking something. It was found in their pocket outside the store. They're clearly guilty. And the judge says, I declare you to be innocent, not guilty. You are not a shoplifter. Now what has to happen is he has to stop being a shoplifter. He has to become what the judge says he is. Very similar to our life in Christ. God has declared us to be new people. He has declared us to be absolutely just as righteous as His Son is. Now, when we become like Christ, we are becoming like what He has already said we are. We're becoming who we really are. We are, we are, we are growing to spiritual maturity. We're simply growing up spiritually. We were created for that purpose. We were made in the image of God in order to become like Christ. God saved us in order for us to become like Christ. Romans 8, verse 29 says, Those whom He predestined to salvation, He has predestined them to be conformed to the image of His Son. That is our destiny. 
to become like Christ. And the reason this is, is of course to bring maximum glory to God. You know, God could have populated the earth with angels that never sinned, worshipped God perfectly. But instead, God desires to receive maximum glory from His creation. Which is why He has allowed us to fall into sin. Because God gets far more glory by redeeming us out of that than He would if we'd never fallen into sin. I think of it this way. I think of it like this. I think in terms of restoring an old car. You ever known somebody that restored an old car? 75-year-old car. And they take that car and they take it apart piece by piece down to every last screw and every last bolt and they lovingly restore it back to its original condition. I was going to do that once. One time we bought a 1930 A model car and, and, and it took me about two weeks to figure out that was way more work than I wanted to do. But people do that and they, they take that car down to, to nothing and lovingly restore it. It was, it was an old rust bucket before and when they're done, it's a beautiful, shiny new penny. Well, if you've ever known somebody that did that, then what do they always want to show you? Pictures. They always want you to see the pictures of what it started out as. They want you to see the pictures of, of the day they picked it up from the junkyard so that you will see this came from that. You brought this out of that. My, what a lot of work that was. Very similar to what God does with us. When God takes wicked, evil, sinful people and makes them like His Son, then he, receive, he receives maximum glory for doing that. And that is the purpose of God. That is our plan. That is why we are here. So the, the, the plan of God is to make all of us like His Son. The question is, how does God do that? How does God make us to be like His Son? And the answer, of course, is by His Spirit. It is the Spirit of God dwelling in us that makes us like His Son. Uh, Paul tells us in in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, as the Spirit of the Lord works within us, we become more and more like Him and we reflect His glory even more. As the Spirit of the Lord works within us, we become more and more like Him. So it is the Spirit of God dwelling in us, making us like His Son. Which is appropriate, right? Because what's Acts all about? Acts is all about the Spirit of God. And so it is the Spirit of God dwelling in Stephen making him to be like Christ. So it's not, as we become like Christ, it's not so much us imitating God as it is God inhabiting us. Our being made like Christ has less to do with imitation than it does inhabitation. God inhabits us. He dwells within us and His Spirit is what changes us into images of His Son, into people that are like His Son. And this is what's happened to Stephen. The work of the Spirit within him has made him to be very much Christ-like. But the question still remains, how was it that the Spirit did this in the life of Stephen? What did the Spirit do in order to make Stephen like Christ? Because let's face it, we don't become like Christ simply by having the Spirit of God in us. The Spirit of God in us has to do things in order to make us like Christ. And so the Spirit of God will work in us and He will 
use certain tools in our life in order to make us like Christ. So let's think for just a moment about what the Spirit of God used in the life of Stephen in order to make Stephen Christ-like. What tools did the Spirit use in order to do this? Now the passage doesn't specifically tell us what tools the Spirit used, but I think if we look closely, I think that they'll be clear to us as we see them. And by the way, these are the same tools that the Spirit uses in your life. Tools the Spirit is using to make Stephen like the Son of God. The first thing that we see that the Spirit uses in the life of Stephen is the Word of God. We look back up to verse 7. Verse 7 says that the Word of God was increasing, was growing in prominence. We see the growth of the Word of God. If we think back through the other chapters of Acts that we've studied up until this point, we remember that Stephen is saved within the context of the early church. And the early church was a church that we've seen over and over, clearly understood that the most important thing that they do is preach and teach the Word of God. We've seen that several times already. But the early church placed preeminence on the preaching and the teaching of the Word of God. And that's the church within which Stephen was saved and within which he was raised up to leadership. Is this church that values highly the preaching and the teaching of the Word of God. So it stands to reason that Peter or, or Stephen understands this. He understands the Word of God, the importance. And so the Spirit of God is using the Word of God in order to make Stephen more like Jesus Christ. Because the truth transforms us, doesn't it? The truth transforms us. When the truth of God enters into us, it pushes out the lies of Satan. Right? Satan's the, father's, the father of lies, right? And so Satan has filled each of us with lies. All of us have within us the lies of Satan. Non-believers are full of the lies of Satan. But even believers still have remaining lies that Satan has told us. And we've believed them and we've put them inside ourselves. Well, the truth of God pushes those lies out. I think of it like a, like a bulldozer. And like the, it's like the bulldozer of truth pushing out the lies of Satan. And so as the truth of God comes into us, it transforms us by removing the lies that we have believed. As we hide His Word in our hearts, Psalm 119, that truth transforms us because the words of God create life, don't they? The words of God create life. Scripture is the words of God. And when God speaks, things change. When God speaks, life results. Remember Genesis 1. God said, let there be light, and there was light. When God speaks, things change. And the Word of God is God speaking to us. And so when God speaks to us through His Word, things change. Life is created. Jesus said... Man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so as the life of God's words enter into us, the living word of God, Hebrews 4.12, as the living word of God enters into us, it creates spiritual life and it pushes out lies. Now, how is it that the word of God transforms us into the image of Christ? The word of God does not transform us into the image of Christ simply by being in us. We can read God's Word, we can memorize God's Word, we can study God's Word, but simply having the Word of God in us does not change us. The Word of God only changes us 
when we receive it, apply it, and obey it. This is what we studied Wednesday night, Hebrews chapter 5. The Word of God must be received, it must be applied, and it must be obeyed in order to change us. The most important decision that you can make in your Christian life is this. The Word of God will be my absolute authority. That is the most important the most important and the most significant decision you can make in your life with Christ is the Word of God will be my authority in life. Billy Graham. Not many people know this about Billy Graham because we think of Billy Graham as such a holy person, a Christ-like person, such a godly man. And he is. But not many people know of how Billy Graham struggled with the Word of God. Early in his life, as he was preparing for ministry, he goes to seminary. And what often happens when men go to seminary is they begin studying God's Word in greater detail than they ever have before. And they begin studying His Word in tremendous depth. And you know what? There's some things in God's Word that are hard to work out. There's some things in God's Word that are hard to understand. And so, as what often happens, Billy Graham was struggling with some of these things. He was struggling with doubts. It happens from time to time. that More than one person has gone to seminary in order to enter the ministry and ended up leaving the faith. So it's happening to Billy Graham. And he's struggling with God's Word because there's parts of it that he just can't work out. Until one night he falls on his knees and cries out to God and says, God, I don't understand everything in this book, but I trust You. And I trust You enough that this book will be my authority in all of life. Whether or not I understand everything, I don't need to understand it all in order to obey it all. And almost from that moment, His ministry was infused with power. We all know about the power of Billy Graham's ministry. Almost from that moment, his ministry was changed. Every Christian must have that moment. I've had that moment. Every Christian must have that moment when you purposely and knowingly submit and you say, this will be my authority regardless. And so the Word of God is the authority in Stephen's life. The Word of God is changing him into the image of Christ. But the Spirit of God is also using another tool in Stephen's life and that is the tool of people. Remember what Stephen's role is. Remember what his position in the church is. He's the administrator of food to the widows. Now we're led to believe that Stephen was actually the leader in this because his name is listed first. So his job is to distribute the food to the widows. Now we talked last week about how many widows there were. This is a church at this point, 15,000 people. And we talked about the disproportionate number of widows in the early church. So there's a lot of widows that Stephen is administering food to. Do you think that some of them are hard to please? Do you think that some of them are giving Stephen a hard time? If, if, you, want, if you want a job in which it's difficult to please people, then you just be in charge of what they eat. You can see that at our house. I think the, the biggest topic of dissension in our house is what's for dinner, right? What do, 
What are we going to eat for breakfast? What's for lunch? When you are in charge of what people eat, be ready for unhappy people. And so Stephen is in charge of the food for all of these widows, and I'm certain that some of them were difficult. Some of them were hard to love. Some of them were hard to please. And it's within that context that God is making Stephen to be like Christ. Stephen could not take God's Word and go off to a mountaintop somewhere and become like Christ. He had to become like Christ in the context of God's church, in the context of people that were sometimes hard to love. Because he cannot go off by himself and become like Christ. You know, a lot of religions teach that. Buddhism, Hinduism. Catholicism teaches that the holiest people are those who go off by themselves to be holy. And so you see people go and join these monasteries or convents and they live the rest of their lives among this small group of people that's just like them, thinking that they're real holy. But the Bible teaches us just the opposite. The Bible teaches us we cannot become holy by ourselves. That we only can become holy, we can only become like Christ in the context of His church, in the context of people that are hard to love, in the context of people that rub us the wrong way. That's the only way that we can become like Christ. You cannot become like Christ from your couch. You cannot become like Christ from your couch. You cannot follow Christ without the church. Because it is within the church that God makes people to be like Him. Like Proverbs 27, verse 17 says, As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Because becoming like Christ is a team sport. Do you think of it that way? Do you think of, of becoming like Christ as a team sport? Or do you think of it as an individual sport? That a lot of us individuals are here trying to become like Christ on our own? Or do you think of this as a team sport? We are here together to become like Christ together. That is what the New Testament puts forth. Becoming like Christ is a team sport. Why so? Why can we only become like Christ in the context of other people? Well, what is the essence of becoming like Christ? What is the essence of spiritual maturity? The essence of spiritual maturity is learning to love God, as Jesus says, with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, and all of our strength. How do we learn to love God with everything we have? Can somebody tell me? You've never seen Him. You've never seen Jesus. You've never seen God. How do you learn to love a God that you've never seen and love Him with all your heart? The Bible answers that. The Apostle John answers that. 1 John chapter 4, verses 20 and 21. John says this, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. In other words, you learn to love God whom you have not seen by loving those whom God has made whom you have seen. He says this, and this commandment we have from him, whoever, does not love, whoever loves God but does not love his brother is a liar. We learn to love the God we've not seen by learning to love those He has made in His image, whom we have seen. And so, for that reason, we cannot become like Christ by ourselves. We can only become like Christ in the context of other people, as Stephen is doing here. 
So the Holy Spirit is using the Word of God. He's using people. The third thing he's using in Stephen's life is trouble. Stephen found a lot of trouble, didn't he? In fact, in chapter 7, we're going to see that this trouble that he gets into ends up in his murder. Stephen is stoned. So Stephen got into a lot of trouble. He was just trying to preach Christ, and that got him killed. Now, let's be careful not to think of this as I have often heard Christians think of Stephen. I've often heard Christians think of Stephen like this. This was such an unfortunate thing. Think of the power of this man. Obviously, he was a powerful preacher for Christ. Obviously, he was filled with power from on high. What if Stephen had lived 30 or 40 years? Maybe he would have been another Apostle Paul. I've heard Christians talk like that. Folks, this was not an unfortunate event. This was the plan of God. It is the plan of God to make His people like His Son by using trouble to do it. By using problems. Every problem in your life has a purpose. Let me qualify that. If you belong to Jesus Christ, every problem in your life has a purpose. Every problem in your life has a significant purpose behind it. God uses the problems of our lives. He uses the circumstances of our lives to make us like His Son. In fact, you know, I believe that God uses circumstances to make us more like Christ even more than He uses His Word. Why can I say that? Well, how often do you read God's Word? Hopefully you read it every day. But how often do you face circumstances? How often do you face problems? You face circumstances 24-7. You face problems all day, every day. And so God has greater opportunity to use problems to make us like Christ than He has to use His Word because we don't read His Word all the time. So God uses problems. Every problem in our life has significance. Problems make us more like Christ because problems force us to look to God. You've heard it said that you don't know that God is all you have until God, or you don't know that God's all you need until God's all you have. You've heard that said. And it's true. You don't know that God's all you need until God is all you have. Because God uses those problems to put our backs against the wall, to put us in those places, to force us to look to God. The Apostle Paul had a lot of problems. We're going to see as we study through beginning chapter 13, we're going to see that the Apostle Paul's life was basically filled with problems. It was one problem right after the other. But one problem he encountered that was particularly difficult, he was in Ephesus. You may remember, remember the story in, Exodus, in, in uh, Acts chapter 19. He's in Ephesus and he's preaching Christ and people are getting saved. Good problem to have, right? So people are getting saved. But as they're getting saved, they're turning from their idols. Well, there's this fella in Ephesus named Demetrius. He's sort of the kingpin idol maker. So he makes all these idols and sells them to people. And the more people that are trusting in Christ, the less business he has. So he's not happy. So he gets together with some of his other powerful cronies there, and they stir up the people. Sounds familiar, right? They stir up the people, and a riot breaks out. And Paul's right in the middle of it. And this riot is so violent... It's so explosive that Paul believes that he is going to be killed. A few years later, 
he writes to the Corinthians about this experience. In 2 Corinthians 1, verses 8 and 9, Paul says this, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, speaking of this, for this experience. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. We thought we were going to die. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. In other words, God used this problem in Paul's life, this trouble in Paul's life, to make Paul more like Christ. That's what God does. He uses the problems of your life to make you like His Son. You will never be free of problems. You will never be problem-free. But if you belong to Christ, you can rest in the fact that God uses every single one to make you like His Son. We're familiar with Romans 8, um, uh, 8 verse 28, right? If we're not familiar with Romans 8, 28, we should be. But we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose, right? That verse tells us, first of all, that there is nothing that happens in your life that is spiritually insignificant. If God uses all things, then that means everything has spiritual significance. So everything in your life is spiritually significant. And God uses all those things together to make you like His Son. He takes all the bad things in our life. Because another thing this verse tells us is not everything in our life is good, right? But Romans 8.28 is not saying everything in your life is good. Our lives have bad things. They have downright evil in them sometimes. Evil touches our lives from time to time. So we have bad things in our life. God takes all those things, works them together for good. Kind of like baking a cake. Has anybody ever baked a cake from scratch? None of the men can raise your hands. Don't, I'm not talking about you and Betty Crocker baking a cake. I'm talking about baking a cake from scratch. Anybody ever done that? Uh, my wife does that all the time. And, and I can tell you from watching, a lot of bad things go into cakes. A lot of things that if you ate them by themselves, they would be very bad. Raw eggs. Anybody like to eat raw eggs? Not me. Flour. You, you like to eat flour with a spoon? Salt by itself? Oil. Anybody drink a cup of oil at breakfast this morning? A lot of bad things go into a cake that they're very bad by themselves. In fact, in our house, um, this happened a while back. Normally in our house, on the counter, there's a, a platter of cake scraps. Because my wife sometimes makes these cakes and then she shapes them into these creative things. And so we, we end up with a lot of scraps left over. And so we have a platter of cake scraps and then beside it will be a container of icing. And so what we're supposed to do is we're supposed to get a piece of cake scrap and put some icing on it, and that's what we eat. Well, I did that one day, and I took a piece of cake scrap, and I put some icing on it, and took a bite, and it, it wasn't icing. It was uh, shortening. Right? I didn't finish the piece of cake, because shortening is bad. So a lot of bad things go into a cake, but they all get mixed in there. And they go in the oven, and heat is applied, and out comes something very delicious. That's very much like what God does in our life. A lot of bad things go into it, and God applies heat to it, and out 
comes something that looks like His Son and sounds like His Son and thinks like His Son. Because God uses all those bad things for good. Now, what Romans 8.28 also tells us is that He doesn't do this for everybody. He only does those for those who belong to His Son. If you do not belong to His Son, then all things in your life work out for bad. But if you belong to His Son, all things work together for good. Now, here's the last point I'm going to make, and then we'll finish. The problems in your life do not make you anything more like Christ if that's all you have. In other words, simply having problems for the child of God does not make you like Christ. Your problems make you more Christ-like only if you respond to those problems as Christ would in faith and trust. And so simply having problems as a Christian does not make you like Christ. You must respond to those problems as Christ would with faith and trust. And then God will take those problems and He will use them to make you more like His Son. Because God cares far more about your character than He cares about your comfort. God's far more concerned with your character than He is your comfort. You know, sometimes we get in a lot of trouble because we forget that. And we think that God is more concerned about our comfort. And you know what? If God's concerned about my comfort, then what's He doing? Because our lives are not very comfortable. And so if God is most concerned about my comfort, then well, either He's forgotten about me, or either He's powerless, or He's not a God of His Word. But when we remind ourselves that God is more concerned with your character than your comfort, it all makes sense. It all comes into perspective. Because God wants to make you like His Son. It is your destiny to be made like His Son. It is your purpose to be made like His Son. And He will use His Word. He will use other people. And He will use trouble to make you like His Son.